This is an ABC podcast. Today, how the rising costs of living is leaving more and more people homeless in regional areas. Well, um, there was a really bad windstorm and it snapped the poles in the boys' room in the tent, oh. ripped a big hole in the side of the tent and, you know, uh, there was literally not another thing I could do. So, I, yeah, I had to... The wife handed me the phone just to call them. And struggling dairy farmers in WA diversify their business, turning milk into pure alcohol. You've heard the term blind drunk? Yeah. Well, that is where it comes from. If you drink 96% yeah. alcohol, it affects your retinas and you permanently go blind. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country. Workers in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria woke up to the news today that the Loy Yang A coal fire station will close a decade early. The news came via the Australian Stock Exchange when owner AGL Energy announced it would change the closure date from 2045 to 2035. Jared Whitaker is a local boy and our reporter in sale. Now, Jared, this change in gears by AGL, did it come as a surprise or was the writing on the wall already? Look, I think that depends on on what you read and what you follow about the energy industry. Uh, We know that market analysts and the Australian energy market operator have been saying for a long time that as the cost of renewables comes down and as Australia's coal-fired plants age, that the shift to renewables was coming and was going to come a lot sooner than originally expected. Uh, If you are in the Latrobe Valley, you're probably thinking uh, that, you know, you've got a job for another 10 years, 15 years, and that gives you a bit of time to plan for what comes next, whether that's re training, uh, looking at new skills, uh, whether that's a different job in the region or looking uh, more broadly across the country. But for people in the Latrobe Valley today, uh, there are a lot of workers now who are going to be having those tough decisions and thinking about all that right now. It's a really quick change, though, from AGL Energy. You were talking about there was an announcement earlier on in the year and now we're, we're not even at the end of the year and it's a change of date again. Is that making that- people skittish? I think it will make people skittish. Uh, there was always an expectation that, that Loyang A would close sooner than expected uh, after getting the announcement which came uh, at the start of the year that it would close in the early 2040s. Uh, people might have, may have thought that that was it. Um, market analysts were saying that, look, they expected another announcement to follow, maybe not as soon as what we're seeing today. And uh, look, there's a lot of questions in the Latrobe Valley. This is a region which has uh, really only gets bad economic news. Uh, this is the third early coal closure in the region after the Hazelwood power station in 2017. Uh, the nearby Yalorn power station is going in 2028. And now we've had Loyang A announce it's going to close in 2035. The big question for the region is what happens to the neighbouring Loyang B power station? It's got a different owner, Alinter Energy, uh, but it uses the Loyang, Loyang mine to source its coal. So that's another 125 jobs there. Are they going to go as well? Um, it's, the expectation has been that the two plants' futures are tied up. And if it does follow suit, uh, what we're looking at now is the end of coal-fired power generation in Victoria.
you're explaining something there about how these coal-fired stations are owned. So they're all privately owned. Yes, so the Victorian coal-fired power stations were all publicly owned until the mid-1990s. And when they were privatised, there were thousands of jobs that were lost as the energy industry in Victoria uh, rationalised. There was a sentiment when Hazelwood shut in 2017 that if the state government had just held on to the the power sector, that it could have been done uh, in a way that that allowed the community to plan for the closures to, in a way that minimise uh, the social and economic impact. Uh, these are all uh, mostly foreign-owned uh, power stations now uh, with with shareholders in, in other countries. AGL is, is Australian-owned. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, these decisions that, that are taken, uh, there's a feeling locally that these decisions are taken uh, in a way which is really there to suit the whims of shareholders rather than, than what's in the, the interests of the community or, or the power grid. For you, Jared, the coal fire stations must have been a backdrop to your life. So, Loyang, A, it started in the 1980s. That's right, isn't it? The 1980s, early 1980s. So, how is it going to be like for a community when this transitioning through to renewables, how's that planning going? Because it's a massive change for a community to go from one thing to the next. And now these timelines are contracting. Look, there was a feeling... um maybe even five years ago that this was so far into the future. Now people are having to deal with it today. Uh, this is a region which has prided itself on being the source of, of, of power generation in Victoria, you know, the region that helps keep the lights on. Uh, and, and, you know, and a lot of the... the the, the region's identity is, is tied up in this one industry. Uh, right now, it's looking for a new identity and, and new industries. Uh, that's been going on for some years now. Uh, the Victorian government uh, was at pains when the, the Hazelwood plant shut in 2017 to make sure that there were um, that there were new industries and new jobs for people to move into. At the time, they were really warned that there would be no silver bullet, there would be no one industry that would come in and replace uh, power generation. And we've sort of seen that, you know, whether it's construction, education, healthcare, um, there's there's been a, a bit by bit uh, effort to to replace the jobs. Um, at, the, at the moment, um, the most exciting. Uh, prospect for the region is offshore wind. Now, the waters of, off the Gippsland coast, so near the Latrobe Valley, have been earmarked as Australia's first offshore wind zone. And that's because there's there's a great wind resource there and the, the power, the, the grid infrastructure that exists in the Latrobe Valley is just so close that, you know, you can really connect up at, at low cost. Now, for some people, that, that gives hope of, of a, a new job, a, a, a new... Um, a new job in, in electricity generation, uh, but not for everyone. So, look, for a lot of people in the region, it's it's what, there's a lot of questions about what comes next. And I suppose the good news this time is that there's, you know, I've got 12 years to, to plan for the likely end of coal in the Latrobe Valley. In its heyday, the um, coal power stations would have employed thousands of people. Loyang A had six, 650 workers. Um, and many of them are ageing, um, an ageing workforce there. But for younger workers, will there be enough work in the renewable energy sector? That's not clear at the moment. Uh, when Hazelwood shut in 2017, uh, the Victorian government, unions and employers partnered up for an Australian first um, 
uh, Australia First scheme to encourage early retirement across the, the local power sector to create jobs for younger workers to continue to work in the industry and to stay in the Latrobe Valley. Now that uh, obviously is not going to happen this time around. Um, we don't know uh, if, when offshore wind gets going, uh, how much of that will be manufactured in Australia, whether it will be shipped in on a boat and set up and, and just how many jobs will be required to maintain it. So there's a lot of questions that remain to be answered. Uh, there's a lot of people who will be wondering tonight um, whether they have a future in this region or whether they need to uproot their family and move them elsewhere. And likewise, there'll be a lot of workers who would be breathing a sigh of relief who will be saying, oh, good, this will get me just through to retirement. Jared, what about power supply? Is there concerns about knocking out this major provider of energy in the, in the region and the ability yep. of renewables to take up that slack? Well, so Loyang A provides about 30% of Victoria's power. Loyang B uh, provides about 20%. So between the two of them, that's about 50% of Victoria's power. Now, there's a lot of um, renewable projects touted in the region. Uh, the Victorian government has uh, recently unveiled um, Australia's biggest battery storage target to make sure that uh, the energy that's produced by renewables um, is able to get to, to homes when it's needed. Um, offshore wind is is expected to be up and running about the time that Loyang closes. So look, there's a lot of work to be done. It's not going to be easy, um, but there's certainly a lot of projects in the pipeline. And if they come off, um, we might be able to make the transition. Our reporter in sale, Jared Whitaker. Wendy Farmer is an environmentalist that was born and bred in the Latrobe Valley and she's the president of the Voices of the Valley. She told me earlier that the community advocacy group was formed during the catastrophic Hazelwood Brown coal mine fire in 2014. Absolutely, it came out of a disaster. But rather than stay in disaster mode and saying, well, poor us, we actually, you know, Voices of the Valley in particular, started going, well, what, what is needed? And we, we looked at what was really needed in this area was a discussion about what happens in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years or 50 years when our coal industry um, does start announcing their closure dates. There is going to be closures earlier than originally expected and there's been numerous announcements around that. What do you make of today's announcement? Look, today's announcement isn't a shock for this community. Um, I guess what this community really wants now is certainty and it wants that hope, but it wants the jobs. It wants to know that there is a plan for the region, but we're no different from any other region around Australia. You know, coal communities right around Australia are getting these announcements constantly now. They want certainty. They want planning. They actually want all levels of government to start paying attention to the regions that have produced um, the energy for the big cities. Do you think 13 years is enough time to transition from coal to renewables in the valley? Look, I, I don't like the argument of coal to renewables or we're moving away from coal. I think coal will do its thing as it lasts. The energy um, operators now are looking at, they're not making profits from the coal industry. Actually, they're losing money daily from, you know, that because renewables are so cheap. So one of the opportunities for the region is 13 years and up. I really don't know. I don't think anybody knows. If we had seven years of inaction from federal governments that really didn't take energy serious. In fact, they, they played games over the last eight years about Hazelwood's closure and it sort of felt like it was the people's fault of Latrobe Valley that, you know, energy prices had gone up and 
we were in the situation that we were. What do you mean that felt like it was the people's fault? I don't quite understand what you mean by that. Well, well when we look at what federal politics did um, after the Hazelwood closure, um, you know, it, it was about, well, they've closed Hazelwood now. They should never have closed Hazelwood because Hazelwood closed. It um, has increased the price of energy. It's given us energy insecurity. It's, you know, will we keep the lights on next summer? Will we keep the lights on next winter? So there was always this talk around Hazelwood and Hazelwood closure. And, you know, it was, to people around here, we sort of felt a little bit like, well, we weren't doing the job that we were supposed to be doing. We had no control. Let's let's think about who owns power, you know, power stations, especially in Latrobe Valley. They're private operators. Usually, well, they are all international operators. And we can't allow them to dictate how energy um, moves forward. We actually need federal and state and local government, so all the three levels of government, to have hands-on and be in the plan of the new energies. Let's not leave it to the private sector because the private sector can come and go when it wants to go. So what would you like to see the three levels of government do to facilitate this kind of transition? I think what's really important now is governments have to have a hand-on approach to it, actually have a coordinated um, system to move forward. But they also need to work with communities on the ground to make sure that what has happened is good for communities as well. How do communities benefit from the transformation of energy? Could that be um, an allocation of community energy to communities that they actually have some profits going back directly into their community. President of the Voices of the Valley, Wendy Farmer, speaking to me a little earlier today. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. With the cost of living rising, more and more people are facing homelessness in regional areas. In the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, James Etienne ended up camping next to a lake with his wife and three kids before he was forced to reach out to local services. Now he's telling his story to encourage others to reach out before it's too late. Kia Hanley has this story. Uh, Well, I I set the tent up right up out on the point now, like right near the lake, which, looking back now, wasn't the brightest choice. <laughs> so it was beautiful, like we walk out and just looking at the lake, it was pine trees. But the lake, was, it looked absolutely gorgeous. Taking the tent and camping by the lake sounds like a pretty picturesque holiday. Uh, we had it set up, had the little three-bedroom tent and the gazebo set up for the kitchen and had the generator to run the TV and everything, so the kids, it was just a big adventure for them. You know, nothing out of the ordinary, they still had everything, so it was all normal for them. But for James Etienne, his wife, their three kids, it wasn't a holiday. This was their home. What did it, it feel like when you realised that that was your only option? Uh, I don't know, you, you can't describe it, love. Like, you, you just think and you feel like you failed. Mm. You know, like I did everything right, but no matter what I did, it just everything just kept going, getting worse and worse. James, Elise and the kids found themselves in a three-room tent on the edge of a lake that is situated between two power stations. And for a while, James thought they were holding it together all right. Until one night, 
as everyone was settled in for the evening. Well, um, there was a really bad windstorm and it snapped the poles in the boys' room in the tent, oh. ripped a big hole in the side of the tent and, you know, uh, there was literally not another thing I could do. So, I, yeah, I had to... The wife handed me the phone and just said, call them. James dialed Link to Home, a 24-7 homeless support service for people in crisis. They arranged for James and the family to head to a nearby hotel for three nights. So James, like like many people who come to our service, came to us as a drop-in. Marina Lee Warner has spent the past 30 years working in community services and she's currently a caseworker at Upper Hunter Homeless Support. James and his wife and family presented and said, we are homeless. We were fortunate that we were able to help James and Elise and the children quite promptly and get them into what we've called transitional housing. But as the demand on our services has increased over the years, um, that stretched our resources incredibly. Over the past few years, that strain on demand it's made it harder for people to reach out and be helped so promptly. There are more and more stories of people struggling with higher rents and the scarcity of affordable housing. I've been here for eight years and I've definitely seen an increase in demand for our services. And I've seen an increase in the demographic that's affected by homelessness as well. You know, primarily uh, we work with people who are usually on a Centrelink income benefit, mm-hmm. but increasingly we are seeing working people, working families um, who are just unable to find a place to live. For James, it took a lot to even admit to himself how far things had spun out. When they handed me those keys, it was, it felt like a ton of bricks was lifted off my shoulders. You know, I just, I just took the deepest, most calming breath I think I've ever had in my life. (laughs) I can, there's no words that can express how thankful and grateful I am for everything they've done for me and my family. You know, like, anything I could ever do to... I don't know if there's any way I couldn't ever repay what they've done for me. James Etienne ending that story by Kia Handley. And you can hear the full version of that story on the Newcastle Hunter Catch-Up on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Spirits made from cow's milk may raise an eyebrow or two, but West Australian farmers say the innovative drink could help the battling dairy industry. The unique spirit is being made in a place called Wokalop. Brianna Fiore has the story. It's 4am and dairy farmers across the southwest and great southern regions in the bottom corner of Western Australia pull on their gumboots. It's pitch black and the grass is wet with dew. The cows are waiting to be milked. They'll need to be milked again later that afternoon. There aren't any days off in dairy farming, and it's been tough adjusting to supply chain disruptions, evolving markets and workforce concerns in recent years. Harvey dairy farmer Dale Hanks has seen his fair share of hardships. In 2016, uh, the contract we had with Browns uh, to supply them was not renewed and other processes in the state wouldn't give us a contract either. So we were left with no other option other than to wind up our business on the uh, 1st of October 2016. Uh, 350 cows in milk at the time. Um, 
yeah, so we wound up the business and actually shut up our dairy for nearly 18 months and yeah, then finally got a contract again on the 1st of January 2018. So yeah, we started milking cows again. Had to go and buy cows and buy heifers and start over. The plight of the dairy industry is why cheese and gin makers, Robert and Penny St. Duke, decided to start making an alcoholic spirit using milk from Dale's cows. We headed to Harvey Cheese to see how it's done. Hello. Hello. Lights on. Where are we? What are we measuring, Robin? Uh, we're heating up the, uh, the vat. It's got uh, liquid in it. This is it. Uh, you this, touch it? Yeah, you can touch it. There's um, whey spirit inside there. And so, it runs through a charcoal filter, and that uh, is taking out all the impurities. What percentage of alcohol is that? Around about 96%. Wow. You've heard the term blind drunk. Yeah. Well, that is where it comes from. If you drink 96% yeah. alcohol, it affects your retinas and you permanently go blind. Tell us a bit more about the product. Well, the product um, we've, we've come up with it. Um, where it's a waste spirit which we're using from uh, our uh, our byproduct from our cheese making. We want the solid in the cheese making. We don't want the <clears throat> the whey. We try and get the liquid out of it. So the solid is what we make the cheese out of. In that way that's uh, put aside, like I said, we send it off to organic farmers before. We're now using it and converting it and. Uh, fermenting it and then after it's fermented with the yeast we then put it through pot stills and so forth to bring out the end product as a gin or a waste spirit. And how is it helping the dairy industry? There's great scope for a lot of farmers out there that can put it on their own property and sell their own um, spirits that they're making themselves and then you might keep the kids at home because they might like the idea of uh, valuating and so forth and um, you know I think it's a, a, a great challenge to all of us to try and value add to the farming industry because it's not um, in WA the farming industry is not robust like it is in Victoria or New South Wales because they haven't got the mines. Back at the dairy Dale is encouraging other farmers to create alternative products using white milk. I think um, all dairy farmers are looking for anybody that can uh, add more value to their product and uh, if you can earn some more revenue through sales to a different area, yeah, anybody, yeah, jump on board. Brianna Fiore reporting there from Wokelop in Western Australia's southern region. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. What would you do with $250,000? Maybe buy a luxury sports car or put down a house deposit. But what about buying a bull? It might sound like crazy, but in the past month, two bulls have sold for the cool price tag of a quarter of a million dollars. Yarrawonga cattle company owner Andrew Basingweight broke the record at an annual bull sale in Queensland Southwest when one of his bulls sold for as much. So what makes a bull worth the same price as a small apartment? The answer might surprise you. 
bullet $250,000, you sort of got to go through the structural things, the same sort of thing as you look at a person if they can walk straight, if how much muscle they've got. So in a bull, you want to have a right amount of muscle, um, but you also want to have the right amount of fat cover. So it's all about having the perfect structure underneath the animal with um, sheath, testicle development, and then semen, and then you gotta put the pretty things on top that everyone looks for. So with this bull, he was just really good looking. He was, you know, his skin was shiny. He, 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 he just had a charisma about him. So he was his absolute sex appeal to him that um, that brought everyone in, that made him make that money. It was, it really was the fact that he was, he was just such an appealing bull with structural correctness and just, you know, that perfect, you know, if you, if you look into a person or or, you know, I suppose your models and stuff like that, they're there to be the perfection of, of what it is. This fella was just bottom line. He was just pretty. There you go. Yarrawonga Cattle Company owner, Andrew Basingwaite there. So if you do find yourself a sexy bull, but he's out of your price range, Hannah Kerr is offering the farm industry's answer to Afterpay. Delay pay is a cash flow finance option for farmers. We basically jump in, do some short-term cash flow financing options, and we can finance any agricultural goods. We've got about 2,000 customer relationships now. You know, producers in the last five years really seen the benefit of buying good bulls to get good progeny. Who knew? An insight into the sale of some fine-looking bulls in Queensland. Hannah Carr finishing that up there. And that's Australia-wide for this Thursday. Remember, you can podcast the show whenever you want to. Just head to the ABC Listen app, search for Australia-wide, and while you're there, why don't you subscribe? I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.